Chapter Six, Part Two of James Watt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. James Watt, by Andrew Carnegie, Chapter Six, Part Two. He conquers and commands others because he has command of himself. We must not lose sight of Murdoch. In addition to his rare qualities, he possessed mechanical genius. He was the inventor of lighting by gas, and it was he who made the first model of a locomotive. There was no emergency with engines, no accident, no blunder, but Murdoch was called in. We read with surprise that his wages even in 1780 were only five dollars per week. He then modestly asked for an advance, but this was not given. A present of one hundred dollars, however, was made to him in recognition of his unusual services. Probably the explanation of the failure to increase his wages at the time was that, owing to the condition of the business, no rise in wages could be made to one which would involve an advance to others. Murdoch remained loyal to the firm, however, although invited into partnership by another. Afterward he received due reward. He had always a strong aversion to partnership, no doubt well founded in this case, for during many years failure seemed almost as likely as success. Watt has much to say in his letters about William Murdoch, who, more than any one, relieved him from trouble. Footnote. An American Murdoch was found in Captain Jones, the best manager of works of his day. He entered the service of the Carnegie Steel Company as a young mechanic at two dollars per day, a perfect copy of Murdoch in many important respects. Reading Murdoch's history, we have found ourselves substituting the Captain, a title well earned on the field in the war for the Union, which he entered as a private. Once he was offered an interest in the firm, which would have made him one of the band of young millionaires. His reply was, Thank you, don't want to have anything to do with business. These works, Steel Rail Mills, Pittsburgh, give me enough to think of. You just give me a thundering salary. All right, Captain, the salary of the President of the United States is yours. Also, like Murdoch, he was an inventor. His principal invention, recently sustained by the Supreme Court, would easily yield from those who appropriated it, and refused payment, at least five millions of dollars in royalties. Captain Jones was born in Pennsylvania of Welsh parents. Murdoch won promotion at last, and was first superintendent of one of the special departments, and later had general supervision of the mechanical department, becoming the right-hand man of the firm. The young partners dealt generously with him and treated him with reverence and affection to the end. He died in his eighty-fifth year. Captain Jones was injured at the works and passed away just as a touch of age came upon him, as many war veterans did. Fortunate is the firm that discovers a William Murdoch or a William Jones, and gives him swing to do the work of an original in his own way. End footnote. The bargainings with mine owners brought on intense heartaches and broke Watt down completely. Bolton had to go to him again in Cornwall in the autumn of 1779, and as usual succeeded in adjusting many disputes by wise compromises with the grasping owners which Watt's strict sense of justice had denied. Many of these had paid no royalties for years, others disputed Watt's unerring register of fuel consumption, another of his most ingenious inventions now in general use for many purposes, a more heinous offence in his eyes than that of non-payment. The rascality of man, he writes, is almost beyond belief. He never was more despondent or more irritable than now. 
No one was better aware of his weakness than himself. In short, his heartaches and nervousness unfitted him for business. As usual, he attributed his discouragement chiefly to his financial obligations. The firm was as hard-pressed as ever. Indeed, a new source of danger had developed. Fothergill's affairs became involved, and had it not been for Bolton's capital and credit, the firm of Bolton and Fothergill could not have maintained payment. This had caused a drain upon their resources. Bolton sold the estate which had come to him by his wife, and the greater part of his father's property, and mortgaged the remainder. It is evident that the great captain had taken in hand far too many enterprises. Probably he had not heard the new doctrine, put all your eggs in one basket, and then watch that basket. He had even ventured considerable sums in blockade-running during the American Revolutionary War. It was not without good reason, therefore, that the more cautious Scott addressed to him so many pathetic letters, I beg of you to attend to these money matters. I cannot rest in my bed until they have some determinate form. Watt's inexperience in money matters caused apprehensions of ruin to arise whenever financial measures were discussed. He was at this time utterly wretched. And Mrs. Watt at last became anxious, long and bravely as she had hitherto borne up and striven to dispel her husband's fears. Never before had she ventured to speak to Bolton upon the subject. She now broke the silence and wrote him in Cornwall a touching letter, stating that her husband's health and spirits had become much worse since Bolton had left Soho. I know there are several things that so prey upon his mind as to render him perfectly miserable. They never cross his mind, but he is rendered unfit to do anything for a long time. She describes these financial demons that torment him, and begs that her writing should not be told to Watt, as it might only add to his troubles. The appeal brings Mrs. Watt before us in a most engaging light. A study of the problem was made upon Bolton's return, and he agreed to close two departments of the business which were so far unprofitable, thus entering upon the right path. The engine having proved itself indispensable, the demand for it was becoming great and pressing from various countries. To concentrate upon its manufacture was obviously the true policy. The great captain's enterprise was not often expended upon failures, and it is with pleasure we find that among the profitable branches which Bolton had encouraged Watt in introducing at Soho was the copying press, which Watt invented in 1778, and which we use to this day. In July of that year he writes Dr. Black that he has lately discovered a method of copying writing instantaneously, provided it has been written within twenty-four hours. I send you a specimen and will impart the secret if it will be of any use to you. It enables me to copy all my business letters. He kept this secret for two years, and in May 1780 secured a patent after he had completed details of the press and experimented with the ink. One hundred and fifty were made and sold. Thirty of these went abroad. It steadily made its way. Watt, writing some thirty years later, said it had proved so useful to him that it was well worth all the trouble of perfecting it, even if it brought no profit. We think of Watt and the steam-engine appears. Let us, however, note the unobtrusive little copying-press on the table at his side. Extremes meet here. It would be difficult to name an invention more universally used in all offices where man labors in any field of activity. In the list of modest inventions of greatest usefulness, the modern copying press must take high rank, and this we owe entirely to Watt. 
Of the same period as the copying machine is his invention of a drying machine for cloth, consisting of three cylinders of copper over which the cloth must turn over and under, while cylinders are filled with steam, the cloth to be alternately wound off and on the two wooden rollers, by which means it will pass over three cylinders in succession. This machine was erected for Watt's father-in-law, Mr. McGregor, in Glasgow, by an ingenious mechanic, John Gardiner often employed by Watt in earlier years. This I apprehend, he writes to David Brewster in 1814, to be the original from which such machines were made. When we consider the extent to which such steam-drying machines are used in our day, our estimate of the credit due to Watt cannot be small. The drying machine is no unfit companion to the copying machine. Watt revisited Cornwall in 1781 to make an inspection of all the engines. Much he found needing attention and improvement. His evenings were spent designing road steam carriages. This was before the day of railroads, and the carriages were to be driven by steam over the ordinary coach roads. He filled a quarto drawing-book with different plans for these, and covered the idea in one of his patent specifications. Bolton suggested in 1781 that the idea of rotary motion should be developed, which Watt had from the very first regarded as of prime importance. It was for this he had invented his original wheel-engine, and in his first patent of 1769 he describes one method of securing it. It occurred to him that the ordinary engine might be adapted to give the rotary motion. He wrote from Cornwall to Bolton, "'As to the circular motion, I will apply it as soon as I can.' He prepared a model upon his return to Soho, using a crank connected with the working beam of the engine for that purpose, which worked satisfactorily. There was nothing new in the crank motion. It was used on every spinning-wheel, grindstone, and foot-lathe turned by hand, but its application to the steam-engine was new. As early as 1771, he writes, I have at times had my thoughts a good deal upon the subject. In general, it appears to me that a crank of a sufficient sweep will be by much the sweetest motion, and perhaps not the dearest, if its durability be considered. I then resolved to adopt the crank. Of this I caused a model to be made, which performed to satisfaction. But being then very much engaged with other business, I neglected to take a patent immediately, and having employed a blackguard of the name of Cartwright, who was afterward hanged, about this model, he, when in company with some of the same sort who worked at Wasborough's mill, and were complaining of its irregularities and frequent disasters, told them he could put them in a way to make a rotative motion which would not go out of order nor stun them with its noise, and accordingly explained to them what he had seen me do. Soon after which John Steed, who was engineer at Wasborough's mill, took a patent for a rotative motion with a crank, and applied it to their engine. Suspicions arising of Cartwright's treachery, he was strictly questioned, and confessed his part in the transaction when too late to be of service to us. Overtures were made by Wasborough to exchange patents and work together, which Watt scornfully rejected. He writes, Though I am not so saucy as many of my countrymen, I have enough innate pride to prevent me from doing a mean action, because a servile prudence may dictate it. I will never meanly sue a thief to give me my own again, unless I have nothing left behind. His blood was up. No dealings with rascals. 
July 1781, Watt had finished his studies, went to Penryn, and swore that he had invented certain new methods of applying the vibrating or reciprocating motion of steam or fire engines to produce a continued rotation or circular motion round an axis or centre, and thereby to give motion to the wheels of mills or other machines. Watt proceeded to work out the plan of the rotary engine, stimulated by numerous inquiries for steam-engines for driving all kinds of mills. He found that the people in London, Manchester, and Birmingham are steam-mill mad. During many long years of trial with their financial troubles, inferior and drunken workmen, disappointing engines, Cornish mine-owners to annoy him, it is highly probable that Watt only found relief in retiring to his garret to gratify his passion for solving difficult mechanical problems. We may even imagine that from his serious mission, the development of the engine, which was ever present, he sometimes flew to the numerous less exhausting inventions for recreation, as the weary student flies to fiction. His mind at this period seems never to have been at rest. His voluminous correspondence constantly reveals one invention after another upon which he was engaged. A new micrometer, a dividing screw, a new surveying quadrant problems for clearing the observed distance of the moon from a star of the effects of refraction and parallax, a drawing-machine, a copying-machine for sculpture, anything and everything he used or saw seems immediately to have been subjected to the question, cannot this be improved, usually with a response in the affirmative. As we have read, he had long studied the question of a locomotive steam-carriage. In Muirhead's biography several pages are devoted to this. In his seventh new improvement, in his patent of 1784, he describes the principle and construction of steam-engines which are applied to give motion to wheel-carriages for removing persons, goods, or other matter from place to place, in which case the engines themselves must be portable. Mr. Murdoch made a model of the engine here specified, which performed well, but nothing important came of this until 1802, when the problem was instantly changed by Watt's friend, Mr. Edgeworth, writing him, I have always thought that steam would become the universal lord, that we should in time scorn post-horses. An iron railroad would be a cheaper thing than a road of the common construction. Here lay in a few words the idea from which our railway system has sprung. Surely Edgeworth deserves to be placed among the immortals. Footnote. Since the above was put in type, I learned that in his forthcoming book upon the development of the locomotive, which promises to become the standard, Mr. Angus Sinclair says, The first suggestion of a railroad for goods transportation appears to have been made before the Literary and Philosophical Society of Newcastle, by a Mr. Thomas of Denton, in February 1800. Two years later, Richard Edgeworth, father of the famous novelist, suggested that it should be extended for the carrying of passengers. There is no record of Thomas's suggestion, as far as we know, but only tradition. Even if made, however, it seems to have lain dead. Edgeworth evidently knew nothing of it, and as it was his letter to Watt which seems to first have attracted public attention, the passage is allowed to stand as written. End footnote. As in the case of the steamship, however, the indispensable steam-engine of Watt had to furnish the motive power. The railroad is only the necessary smooth track upon which the steam-engine could perform its miracle. It is significant that steam-power upon roads required the abandonment of the usual highway, 
so we may believe is the automobile to force new roads of its own or to widen existing highways rendering those safe under certain rules for speed of twenty miles per hour or even more when they were intended only for eight or ten the reading lamp of watt's day was a poor affair and as he never saw an inefficient instrument without studying its improvement he produced a new lamp he wrote argand of the argand burner upon the subject and for a long time watt lamps were made at the soho works which gave a light surpassing in steadiness and brilliance anything of the kind that had yet appeared he gives four plans for lamps with the reservoir below and the stem as tall as you please he also made an instrument for determining the specific gravity of liquids and a year after this he found out a method of working tubes of the elastic resin without dissolving it the importance of such tubes for a thousand purposes in the arts and sciences is now appreciated watt gave much time to an arithmetical machine which he found exceedingly simple to plan but he adds i have learnt by experience that in mechanics many things fall out between the cup and the mouth he describes what it is to accomplish but it remained for babbage at a much later date to perfect the machine a machine for copying sculpture amused him for a time but it was never finished if any difficulty of a mechanical nature arose people naturally turned to watt for a solution thus the glasgow university failed to get pipes for conveying water across the clyde to stand the channel of the river being covered with mud and shifty sand full of inequalities and subject to the pressure of a considerable body of water application was at last made to the recognized genius if he could not solve it who could this was just one of the things that watt liked to do he promptly devised an articulated suction pipe with parts formed on the principle of a lobster's tail this crustacean tube a thousand feet long solved the matter watt stated that his services were induced solely by a desire to be of use in procuring good water to the city of glasgow and to promote the prosperity of a company which had risked so much for the public good these were handsomely acknowledged by the presentation to him of a valuable piece of plate as another proof of watt's habit of thinking of everything that could possibly be improved it may be news to many readers that the consumption of the smoke from steam engines early attracted his attention and that he patented devices for this these have been substantially followed in the numerous attempts which have been made from time to time to reduce the huge volumes of smoke that keep so many cities under a cloud he was successful and his son james writes to him in seventeen ninety from manchester it is astonishing what an impression the smoke-consuming power of the engine has made upon everybody hereabouts they scarcely trusted to the evidence of their senses you would be diverted to hear the strange hypotheses which have been stated to account for it this is all very well it is certain that most of the smoke made in manufacturing concerns can be consumed if manufacturers are compelled by law to erect sufficient heating surface and to include the well-known appliances including those for careful firing but no city so far as the writer knows has ever been able to enforce effective laws there remain the dwellings of the people to deal with which give forth smoke in large cities in the aggregate far exceeding that made by the manufacturing plants new york pursues the only plan for ensuring the clearest skies of any large city in the world where coal is generally used by making the use of bituminous coal unlawful the enormous growth of present new york forty five per cent in last decade is not a little dependent upon the attraction of clear blue skies and the resulting cleanliness of all things in and about the city compared with others 
when by the progress of invention or new methods of distributing heat smoke is banished as it probably will be some day many rich citizens will remain in their respective western cities instead of flocking to the clear blue-skied metropolis as they are now so generally doing such were some of watt's by-products his recreation if found at all was found in change of occupation we read of no idle days no pleasure trips no vacations only change of work rumors of new inventions of engines far excelling his continued to disturb watt and much of his time was given to investigation he thought of a caloric air engine as possibly one of the new ideas then of the practicability of producing mechanical power by the absorption and condensation of gas on the one hand and by its disengagement and expansion on the other his mind seemed to range over the entire field of possibilities the hornblower engine had been heralded as sure to displace the watt when it was described it proved to be as watt said no less than our double-cylinder engine worked upon our principle of expansion it is fourteen years since i mentioned it to mr smeaton watt had explained to dr small his method of working steam expansively as early as may seventeen sixty nine and had adopted it in the soho engine and also in the shadwell engine erected in that year we have seen before that watt had to retrace his steps and abandon for a time in later engines what he had before ventured upon the application of steam for propelling boats upon the water was at this time seventeen eighty eight attracting much attention bolton and watt were urged to undertake experiments this they declined to entertain having their facilities fully employed in their own field but finally fulton on august sixth eighteen o three ordered an engine from them from his own drawings intended for this purpose repeating the order in person in eighteen o four it was shipped to america early in eighteen o five and in eighteen o seven placed upon the clermont which ran upon the hudson river as a passenger boat attaining a speed of about five miles an hour this was the first steamboat that was ever used for passengers and although fulton neither invented the boat nor the engine nor the combination of the two still he is entitled to great credit for overcoming innumerable difficulties sufficient to discourage most men fulton who was the son of a scotsman from dumfrenshire visited simonton's steamboat the charlotte dundas in scotland in eighteen o one and had seen it successfully towing canal boats upon the fourth and clyde canal this was the first boat ever propelled by steam successfully for commercial purposes it was subsequently discarded not because it did not tow the canal boats but because the revolving paddle-wheels caused waves that threatened to wash away the canal banks several engines were sent to new york the men in charge of one found on shipboard a pattern-maker going to america named john hewitt he settled in america january twelfth seventeen ninety six and became the father of the late famous and deeply lamented hon abram s hewitt long a member of congress and afterward mayor of new york foremost in many improvements in the city the last being the subway just opened which owes its inception to him for this service the chamber of commerce presented him with a memorial medal mr hewitt married a daughter of peter cooper founder of the cooper institute which owes its wonderful development chiefly to him his children devote themselves and their fortunes to its management at the time of his death in nineteen o two he was pronounced the first private citizen of the republic small engine shops of which the ruins still remain called soho after their prototype were erected by his father near new york city on the greenwood division of the erie railroad 
The railroad station was called Soho by Mr. Abram S. Hewitt, who was then president of the railroad company. Upon Mr. Hewitt's eightieth birthday congratulations poured in from all quarters. One cable from abroad attracted attention as appropriate and deserved. Ten octaves every note truly struck and grandly sung. No man in private life passed away in our day with such general lamentation. The Republic got even more valuable material than engines from the old home in the ship that arrived on January 12, 1796. We must not permit ourselves to forget that it was not until the Watt engine was applied to steam navigation that the success of the latter became possible. It was only by this that it could be made practicable, so that the steamship is the product of the steam engine, and it is to Watt we owe the modern twenty-three thousand ton monster, and larger monsters soon to come, which keeps its course against wind and tide almost unshaked of motion, for this can now properly be said. Passengers crossing the Atlantic from port to port now scarcely know anything of irregular motion, and never more than the gentlest of slight heaves, even during the gale that catches the ruffian billows by their tops, curling their monstrous heads. The ocean, traversed in these ships, is a smooth highway, nothing but a ferry, and a week spent upon it has become perhaps the most enjoyable and the most healthful of holiday excursions provided the prudent excursionist has left behind positive instructions that wireless telegrams shall not follow end of chapter 6 part 2 recording by bill borst